This episode is brought to you by Skilljar. In customer education, we know that trained customers are your best customers, which is why companies turn to Skilljar to drive adoption, retention, and efficiency, support their products, and to build healthier, more profitable organizations and strengthen the power of your brand. You don't say. Well, just look at some of the great companies that use Skilljar to power their own training programs. That's companies like LinkedIn, Cisco, U-Haul, Spotify, and more. They all trust Skilljar to train their customers, partners, or even employees. And I like that it's well-architected with quality connectors and integrations to Salesforce and HubSpot. We both appreciate their amazing partnership from their customer success team. Get your personal demo for Skilljar at skilljar.com. Customer training made easy. Welcome to C-Lab, the Customer Education Laboratory, where we explore how to build customer education programs, experiment with new approaches, and exterminate the myths and bad advice and stop gross dead in its tracks. I am Dave Darrington. And I'm Adam Avramescu. How's it going, Dave? It's going great. And how do we always start this off? What's the national or international day of today, Adam? Let's pick a good one. Uh, I think uh, you've heard of Father's Day, but have have you heard of Forefather's Day? Why do you put four in front of it? Are there three before that? I don't know. <laughs> no, I've never heard about oh it. Oh my gosh! This? Yeah, you Father's you must day. you must in fact be a dad. Forefather's Day is the day where <laughs> we celebrate our forefathers, and I think actually this is a a really appropriate one because. Today, we are actually going back in time in a way, right? We're going to to our forefathers and, and uh, I guess, to be gender inclusive, our foreparents of, of customer education. Yeah, we have a good one today. Today, we're going to look backward to move forward, right? Uh, it's the end of 2022, thank God. Um, and let's, uh, let's bring the book up, Customer Education. Oh. Oh. We're going to talk about this today. This We've been looking forward to doing this for quite some time. Claudia Gallard-Mir is our uh, author of the day. And what we decided we wanted to do, Adam, you've been talking about this for a long time after you discovered this book. Um, I, you know, I didn't discover this book. I heard about this book from your friend and mine, Bill Cashard. Ah, Bill. Hello, Bill. Yeah. Friend of the show, Bill. He, the show. Uh, he somehow stumbled upon this book several years ago and gave it a read and uh, mentioned that it was surprisingly relevant still for uh, for today. So we thought, hey, you know what? Why don't we get our hands on this and see what uh, Claudia Gallard-Mira was saying about customer education in the year <clears throat> 1984. Dave, can you believe that someone was writing about customer education in 1984, first of all? No, I mean... When I sit down, when when you talked about this book and Bill talked about the book, I, I and you look at it and look at it, it's like, oh, this this looks like it'd been homemade and a little bit on the cover. The, the book itself is good, but no, it blew my mind to say somebody almost forty years ago was thinking these same things that we've been thinking and talking about for oh, the last. No, 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 no. It's certainly it's not forty years. Certainly, certainly, a child of the mid '80s. It can't. It cannot be. 
Yeah, it's a long time. Anyway, yeah. So we're so we, <laughs> so we found this old book, and we are we're going to do a bit of a book review today, uh, because you know it's not often that you find a book uh, about your profession written forty years ago, and we wanted to reflect on you know what what she was saying in the book was true of that time, and also then kind of reflect on how we got to today. But I think Dave, like. You know, you you always say this. You say customer education is new and not new. And I think that's actually a really good lens for us to be able to look at the the conclusions of this book because yeah. there are some things where it is very clearly of its time and we'll we'll have some observations there, but also some things that really do stay timeless. Yeah, I I think this is really interesting. And if I were to frame up how Claudia looked at the book, and maybe that will inform how we approach it. I think we should approach if, it. If we, like if we may call her Claudia, Claudia or um, Dr. Mir, Dr. Mir, is she a doctor? Like if Claudia, if you're no, out there, I don't there, know. She's a, she's a professor. <clears throat> I don't know. If she's a doctor actually. It's not always a requirement, but it's a good recommendation. Um, so anyway, uh, my take on this book, and I think a good place to start is that it's a really good overview of six fundamental use cases, companies, businesses out there that are kind of evocative of companies that we have today in a different context. And, you know, these were all operating in the late seventies, early eighties, when she was looking at them, she was going in, talking, interviewing, learning from the courses themselves. And I think it's kind of interesting. There was two of them that were really, I think, and this is my impression. You can tell me what you think. They're really more like the companies we work with today computer technology, using the similar technology to what we are now, uh, two were in the medical or healthcare industry. And that's interesting to see. One was in the, the financial space, which there's a lot of FinTech out there now. And then utilities was the last one. So it's a good solid six use cases. I would like to see more, but it's interesting the story she tells. What do you think? What do you think about this, the setup? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's interesting both because she doesn't spend an equal amount of time on the different use cases. Uh, she does mm -hmm. try to go around several different sectors, but you can also see you know, she's trying to answer this question of based on the you know the utility of the different uh, programs and like how developed and mature they were. Uh, you know, she spent more time on the more complex and well funded and well resourced programs. Mm -hmm. Um. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think it'll be interesting to to dive in and see some of the ones that apply more to us, but as well, I think to understand kind of what was driving the relative depth of some of those programs. Yeah, you know, before we get into that, the thing that I thought was like a linchpin for me and helps me frame up what I'm thinking about in the book is that on you know around page twelve thirteen, she's talking about the objectives of the study itself, which was yeah. Uh, exploratory descriptive. The main objective is to explore the purposes, structures, processes, and outcomes of customer education in selected organizations. So mm -hmm. she had six main questions that she wanted to ask, which were about, you know, what are the organization's, organization's objectives for customer education? What's the structure yeah. of it? And that could How's be it? like product awareness, sales, reducing service calls, PR, yeah. feedback for product development, legal obligation, customer sat, like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Customer, you talk about that evaluation. How did you do it? I thought it was really interesting. And we'll get into this later that they're talking about the same kind of metrics that 
plague us today. Yeah, it's the same stuff that we do. Yeah. So okay. So those that was <clears throat> those are the objectives. Then what were the other questions? Um, okay, evaluation. What are the education educational methods, materials used by customer education? What are the tools yeah. we use? And then like what and are the, the and the ones problems? that they had then were like really interesting too because they're like similar to what we use today, but a little different because the technology wasn't there yet. Yeah, so like yeah, lectures, demos, simulations. Although, yeah, there uh, were AV presentations, there. product literature, film instruction strips, manuals, film strips, film strips. Yeah. So it was like you could see as the it was sort of the analogs for things that we use today. Um, and then she <laughs> asked, what's the, the structure of customer digital. education? One of the yeah, that's true. They were literally <laughs> named digital. Uh, what's the structure of customer education in the company and uh, how is it organized and financed? Yeah. And evaluation. How do they evaluate the success of their programs? Yeah. So yeah, uh, it was it's interesting because like okay, before I feel like I feel like we never get to the fireworks factory with this kind of thing, but like <laughs> um the premise, the premise of this book is like like why is she writing about this in the first place? Because um she says right at the beginning, virtually no research has been done on customer education, even though its existence appears to be widespread. So in addition to unpacking the <laughs> questions like those those objectives in the book and doing them through these six case studies that's the fundamental question that she's trying to answer she's like there's this thing that a lot of uh, a lot of companies are doing and they're actually making quite a bit of investment in but they don't know why or nobody actually like knows what it is and why it's why it exists and and well, yeah I, go ahead i have to ask you like you, we both read this book and we're sitting there looking and going over this. And I read that same phrase that you did. Virtually no research has been done, even though its existence appears widespread. I want I want to challenge you to go back to a moment in time. And I know we were at a conference. I think it was a SEDMA conference back in maybe 2017. Was that yeah, around that? I era? thought you were going to challenge me to go back to 1984. Go back to 1984. <laughs> <laughs> if you can do that, you know, I'll be really, really impressed. But... No, just the, the time and space where you and I and others were starting to ask the same question is, Adam, there's this thing. There's this thing that it's around education, but it's around software and, and, and helping customers. And we don't know what this, it's the same question that they had in mind. She had in mind in 1984. Yeah, it's asking. true. Well, you're, you're, you're kind of scooping a little bit. Like there was this question that kept coming to mind for me throughout this whole book, and I kind of want to come back to it sometime in our discussion today, which is like, okay, I want to go back a little bit further than 2017, because I feel like by 2017, we already had some some traction in customer education. But let's let's go back to like, I don't know, 2011, something like that, yeah. where, <clears throat> you know, you, you and I weren't in our like, quote unquote, customer education roles yet. We were doing things that were related, but we weren't exactly there. It wasn't called customer education even like SEDMA wasn't called the Customer Education Management Association yet. They were still called the Computer Education Management Association. You didn't really have people with customer education titles, even though there were people doing training for customers. So it's like somehow, even despite the efforts of this book uh, and like uh, kind of this, I guess, growing idea that there was a thing called customer education and it was a discipline and companies were investing in it and we could put a name on it in 1984, somewhere along the way, we kind of lost that thread and the terminology and the conception of what customer education is didn't really like 
come back to its present definition for what, like another 30 something years. And somewhere in the middle, you Almost had, of course, cool. customer training teams the whole time. You had education services. Um, but I'm kind of curious. I'm curious about like maybe what happened between then and now and what's changed in the environment that allows customer education now to kind of exist as, as we understand it, whereas it just seemed to kind of like dissipate for a little while in the middle. You know what no, I'm saying? Really, yeah, I know what you're saying. And the only thing is that when we talk about customer education, it still feels to me like our industry, our space, our market does not recognize it as, a, a, as its own practice or industry, individuated from anything else, right? It's been there. It is still there. When you, when you read through the book, and we, we're going to go through these use cases, the stories Claudia tells, the observation Claudia makes, the, the titles of the people that are in there, I think one of the problems is you can't just say like, uh, okay, let's say customer success. We're going to get around to talking about customer success a lot. We talk about it a lot all the time. Why? Well, the the words and the people and the things, the stories are being told in here around, quite frankly, more sales and post-sales and you're about account managers. And, and the story is that pre-customer success story, right? The crap, what do we do to help people learn all this stuff? How do we... And, and everybody realizes that that needed to be done, but nobody talks about it. So it, it's like trainers are there and designers are there. And, you know, there are these titles being thrown around, but none of the titles represents customer education. It's not like you can't just put it out in front. And that's why I think it's been obscured and, and hidden for decades. And, and we're coming back to it. That's just my, my rough thinking yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, so let's let's do this then. Let's let's get in a little bit. Let's uh, let's let's start before we go into the case studies with like how she defines it, and we can talk about like the methodology she used and, and all of that. I, I I think like it's interesting. You, you even look kind of at the in in the front cover, and it says, yeah. "What is customer education? The purpose of customer education is to promote or sell a product." This is a very sales and marketing oriented definition. She's giving examples like a cosmetic company distributing literature about grooming or a computer mm -hmm. firm that offers computer education classes. And this is all about, I mean, it's about building knowledge and skills, but it's also about like building a market for your product. And it's interesting that in some ways, these are the earliest definitions of what customer education for is for. It like predates the idea of product training as we understand it now. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Vidiate. Vidiate automates the creation of software videos, making it super fast and easy to produce up-to-date content with every new release. From script to screen, with no in-between, you're able to skip all the manual labor of production by simply plugging in a script to the platform and then watching that video come to life in real time. Check it out today at vidiate.io. Yeah, that's interesting. That's really interesting to think. I mean, we're coming from that customer-facing Oh man, we should really get into some of these examples because I feel like I'm going to scoop my quotes that I'll, I'll want to talk about later. Um, where shall we start? Okay, let, you want to start yeah, let's let's do it. And... Let's not. Yeah, that's well, that's what I'm saying. So like she so she defines it right. Let's just go mm -hmm. quickly through this, and then we can get into the case studies. She she defines it. She's talking about some of these examples. I do mm -hmm. think it's really interesting that like often we have the light bulb moment of like, oh, we shouldn't just be doing training on our product. We should actually be training on the industry. And yet that's actually kind of where customer education started as she's going through the history. 
Uh, she defines it as a purposeful, sustained, and organized learning activity that is designed to impart attitudes, knowledge, or skills to customers or potential customers by a business or industry, which uh, seems like a pretty flexible definition. There's a lot of ors in there, but um, I guess what I take from that is like, it has to be like organized. It can't just be some random ad hoc thing that you're doing. Yeah. You have to be like changing something for your target audience because it's training or education. Uh, and it's got to be like customers or or potential customers. And it has to be delivered by a business. So she differentiates this from two things. One is she differentiates it from uh, employee education because she talks about the idea that like employee development uh -huh. has been around forever. Uh, and we know what that is, but we've just never thought about like uh, treating it more like systematically for customers. And the other thing she differentiates it from is what she calls consumer education, which I feel like you and I don't think that much about like consumer education versus customer education being different things. But right. the distinction she makes there is like it's consumer education if it's offered by a third party. Like like that's like consumer reports uh, telling you like which which uh, uh, I'm trying to think of something from the 80s, like which which um, uh, boombox to buy. Whereas like customer education like popular, has to be like oh, gosh. the boombox manufacturer is telling you like how to use the boombox better yeah you know uh-huh it's it's okay it's fascinating okay cool so we've got that and then what's interesting in there is she calls it out that like even at that time customer education could still encompass this whole range of modalities it could be classroom trainings it could be literature it could be uh labs uh so it, it's also interesting to see that even at this early state like all the modalities or or their 80s equivalents were were there. There wasn't this idea that customer education was purely just going to a multi-day training session. Yeah. Um, and then finally, she calls out that companies are already dedicating considerable resources to it, but they just haven't labeled it. So by labeling it, that's actually how in some ways we advance the state of the profession. So Give I feel like we, we've been continuously learning that lesson for four decades now. Yeah, but at this point, I really think it's time to lock it in. We know what this is. Mm -hmm. We know what the function is. It, I, I felt until more recently, even probably early this year, that the formality of existence, calling something, giving it a name and having an industry recognize it is the first step in making it a real formal practice. And I think... Yeah, that's true. Well, it was done 40 years ago-ish, right? But what we're saying today is this is a known quantity. These are the practices. There's multiple books written on the subject now. Let's take it next level. And and I really like the, I think we can tell a really good story using these use cases that, and go compare, contrast, compare, contrast. What have we learned? Yeah. Um, yeah. Go it's it's also why I don't like to get like too far into the debate of like, what do we call customer education? Like, should it actually be called customer enablement? Should it actually be called organizational education, whatever it is, because it's like, like having a consistent name for the thing is what, what unites us. And it, to me, it matters less like what we call it than, than that we call it the same thing. So yeah, That's let's right. go into the use cases. And I think like before she gets into the ones that she studied herself, she actually gives a couple of really interesting like third hand accounts where she's looking at some of the literature up to that point, like a lot mm -hmm. of uh, uh, case studies from the 60s and 70s. So there's, there's three in particular that she cites. Uh, and one of them is uh, from this uh, guy named Lusterman. Uh, don't have mm -hmm. the first name for any of these people. I just wrote down their last names. Um, 
Lusterman found that 44% of the respondents uh, in his study provided some form of education to customers. Um, but the examples weren't just like end user training. They were also kind of more like partner or let's say like supply chain oriented. It was like auto mm -hmm. manufacturers training their dealers or like a soft drink company training their bottlers or food chains training their franchisees, like things like that, where you're training people who are your, right? It's kind of partner right. enablement, right? Yeah. Yeah. In addition to doing what you would consider more like consumer oriented training. Uh, then she looks at one from McGuire. Again, don't have the first name. Sorry, McGuire. Uh, McGuire found customer education having two purposes. One, assisting in better purchase decisions. So again, this like very like kind of immediate pre-sales, but also increasing public awareness of products and services. So this again was like examples of companies doing things that were less about selling the benefits of their immediate product and more about growing awareness of the space. So this is like Gillette putting out booklets on grooming and trends and clothes or like uh, Bristol Myers, which yeah. I don't think had their squid yet. I think it was just Bristol Myers at the time doing like public health programs. And then uh, did, did you, do you see the third one from uh, Larson? You the third one, from... one. No. Oh wait. Yeah. Oh, the, um, the, the, the fluid, oh, the fluid power schools. By the yeah. machine company. That was neat. Like, oh my gosh. When yeah. I was reading, do you remember? Something... Yeah, do you remember like the quote in there? It was really yeah, interesting. Our business has increased many times the national rate of industry growth. One of the biggest advantages is that service calls have been cut drastically. So yeah. that I mean, service, this is the support play. This is the call the that's the support play, sure. but then you you call I think you called out to me earlier like what they said about pricing like that was interesting too. Oh, do not have a free school. I love that 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 quote there. I, I remember and then if you're reading along with the book, I think it's like page thirteen or fourteen or something like that. No, ten. Do not have a free school. Let's repeat that again. Yeah, please do not tag, have tag a free us on LinkedIn school. if you are reading the book along with us. But yeah, yeah do not have a free school. school. So what so what are they talking about there? What does that mean? Well. It's again what we say. I like. I'm just going to read the quote. One secret to success is the tuition charge. Do not have a free school. It is hard to give away anything valuable, and people are prone to think it is worthless. What have we said over the last, you know, five years or so? Talking about this, we've had this massive discussion around giving, you know, the the fee free to fee continuum vis-a-vis -vis Maria Manning Chapman. You know, we have this inclination to want to charge for things. We also have this pull the pull, you know, give it away just to help. But the valuation, regardless of any activity, is the most important thing. And that's persistent. Yeah. And and you actually you see this pretty clearly in some of the case studies that she looks at as well in terms of that. The, the, like you see that idea of value perception show up several yeah. different times, as well as uh, I think value and and then in some cases, revenue generation also being tied to the maturity of the program she's looking at. So like, so let's do it. Let's, let's get to the, uh, to the fireworks factory. And I think we could spend most of our time talking about the two that are closest to, uh, I think the world that we're, that we're in, right. We could look at Veritiper and, um, digital, digital primarily. Um, but we could spend a little bit of time on the others. I just think they're like a little less yeah, let, relevant. Let, let's dive into it. Um, I think we went over the methodology. We know what we're looking at. We're looking at what six companies that were generally in the New York City, city metro, and yep. 
this is a combination of I I like I'm I'm reading this book and I was going through it again last night and thinking about Claudia telling the story of talking you know, oh I sat in here and this one I didn't participate in I just watched or I went to a lounge and I talked to the students and and I feel like she's that investigative journalist that we all have in our soul we're all just trying to ask questions to think, think how things work really neat so let's start off with our first one Veritiper who are they Veritiper who are they 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 are a typesetting equipment manufacturer what even is that anymore it's like we've got word processors <laughs> but it looked yeah, like true. pretty technical when i was reading through this it seemed like this was ex like the forerunner of you know, photoshop and you know doing the really not photoshop but you know the really technical graphic art but it was a system yeah well yeah i don't know i mean they must still have i actually my father used to own a like a a, a minuteman press uh franchise like he, he probably knows if they still use industrial typesetters but mm -hmm. i imagine something like this is still around yeah i'm looking at a picture of it right now actually and yeah it's you know typesetting computers we're on that that cusp of the digital technology digital world i don't think it's worth us getting into exactly what they do like, but that's not the point well, the but. point the point is we're talking about like a pretty complex machine that is a, a large investment right they at, at in this uh book they're they're charging like 30 to 40k i think for a, a typesetter oh yeah and <laughs> in that they're bundling in uh training as part of the package because they want to make sure that if you are the typesetter operator this is this is like a software company training the admin right yeah. they want to make sure that you're you're using it correctly and you're protecting the investment and so you've got like um You've got training on how to operate the tools, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is it, it was really interesting here, and I'm this isn't in our notes, but I just remembered this. I remember reading about the Veritiper people, and even probably elsewhere in the book, where there's this use case or this discussion about what happens when the trainer can't when somebody's untrainable. They were they were talking about oh how, yeah yeah you know what I'm talking about how critical yeah, it was that I and that I think that for me really paves a lot of what Veritiper was talking about because it is like you mentioned that admin the admin debacle the admin debacle is one of the first personas or roles we always investigate and explore when we're doing job task analysis and really understanding who are the players and what do they do and this one was fascinating because they realized i think that this the the ability of a person to actually use at a degree of competency that's system because they were out in the field they didn't have anything but books was so vital to their success yeah so like so what we're talking about here is like so you well maybe to to set the stage you've got yeah. two different uh training teams at this company you've got one that's sort of like the central corporate one they mm -hmm. are writing materials that's going to get distributed out to the the field and to the sales team uh and then they're also kind of doing some of the centralized tech support content and they're also doing train the trainers for the field reps but then they've got this whole field service team they're called marketing service reps marketing support reps something like that msrs, MSRs and yeah. the msrs are in the field and they're going out to each location and they're basically responsible for doing initial trainings for the customers and it's like a three to seven day training mm -hmm. and then ongoing uh handling like ongoing support so they're like a combination of 
I guess like a CSM and a support agent today, but they're out in the field. They're, they're, they're going on site to the customer. Um, and then you can pick up the phone and call them when you need help. So like, they're also, they're coming and visiting you after that initial training, they're coming four yeah. weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks later. And they're doing these like little trainings, sometimes one-to-one it says later they move to like three to four people at a time. But if they're working with someone who clearly isn't getting it and they can observe that, right. Because they're, they're working very directly with the people who are going to be operating the machines. Then this is your admin debacle thing that you're talking about. They, they can actually make a recommendation back to the purchaser that they find a different person to, uh, to operate the typesetting machine. And if they have to like yeah. keep coming back out and training you, then like they'd rather make the recommendation that you need someone who doesn't need to be trained a million times. Yeah. And you know what I, what I want you to talk about in, and I don't want to steal your lead. The other quote that came out of this, and we mentioned it before, how important this was. The, the, the one about the price. Yeah, that's so that's it, right? Like it's it's a whole protector investment thing. Like there there were two quotes that stood out to me. One is like um their their sales pitch basically for training if a customer tries to accelerate their um their onboarding and not do the training is hey buddy, you just spent 30 to 40k on an expensive system. I don't know if it said buddy. I didn't put that Hey in the buddy. Book. Hey you, buddy. You just buddy. <laughs> buddy, you just Bud D, you just spent 30 to 40K on an expensive system. If it's to work the way it should, your operators need training. So that to me is totally, it's, it's protector investment. The other thing though, that that's interesting is like internally when they're talking to their MSRs about what their job is, they say, your job is not only to teach them how to use the system, but how to like the system. So it's a real actual like customer satisfaction and customer loyalty play. If you think what they're really there to do. Yeah. That's that one was really impactful to me, Adam, just hearing them say, seeing that written there, buddy, you spent 30, $40,000 in $1980. Okay. What does that translate today? I mean, we're talking really, I don't know. I need, I should have, I should have brought up the calculator from like $84 to yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't think we have to. Let's 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 take for example the cost of a, con, a conventional, a standard learning management platform today. A one, a, you know, one that you're looking at six figures at some in some cases. And I'm not talking about your first run. I'm talking about a, a very good, robust platform, mature. It has all the things you're ever going to need. Um, that could be any kind of system. All these platforms that we've been working at, Adam. It's, it's these companies make massive investments in software. And yet what I think we're, we're seeing a lot of the times, and this is still the play in my mind is if education and training about the products and the services that you have to your customers, isn't something you lead with for your company, mm-hmm. who's going to learn this platform? If it's that hard to learn, or if, even if like you want, I like it. I want you to like the system. I, that's what we do. almost all the time. I want you to like this. I want you to be able to use it. This episode is brought to you by TechSmith. That's right, TechSmith. You know them from Snagit and Camtasia. Snagit lets you create images, GIFs, and videos to show others exactly what you see. And Camtasia is the famous screen recording and video editing software made easy. Yeah, I love it, Adam. You know, I have to say my story here is that Camtasia kind of saved my soul. 
When I was working, trying to build my first program, I discovered Camtasia and other TechSmith products, and I needed something that was relatively inexpensive, easy to use, and powerful. Overnight, I went from doing tedious editing, recording, and just whatever I had available to me alone with little coaching, being able to make really super high quality videos in a short amount of time. That sounds amazing. And so if you want to create and share images and videos for better training, tutorials, lessons, and everyday communication, you can do that at techsmith.com. That's techsmith.com. Yeah, yeah. It's not just about being able to be competent with it. Uh, it's I looked it up. It's it's uh, about 85 to uh, 115K in today's dollars that yeah, you invested in the system. So it's like, you want to make sure, like, and and what what Veritiper wants to make sure is that you feel well enough supported with the machine that you just got, and you get enough value from it that you're going to come back and buy your next machine from them, right? Yeah. So there's there is there's a there's a top line and bottom line thing here, right? They want to be able to to support you effectively and make sure that you can get self sufficient with the thing, but at the same time, they also want you to buy their next uh, uh, typesetter machine okay yeah. so they so they had that oh and like actually uh they also consider it a competitive advantage um they say because they include this training with their product that is both free and timely right they do it when you're setting up the machine uh they'll come out and do it again if you need it they consider that a competitive advantage against uh other typesetters yeah i mean that's this is the language we speak every day it's enabling and helping our customers, empowering our customers to understand the platform beyond just the clicks. What are we doing? How do we do our workflows? How do we achieve things? You, once you have that commitment and I understand the platform I'm using really well, then I'm going to stay with it. And that's yeah. what these companies thought about decades ago. It, I, I just love it. We're going to have other examples in here, but this is the, the recurring theme that all of these companies yeah. recognize that value. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it we're about to have a good bridge into talking about digital, actually, um, and then we can talk about the non the non tech companies. Uh, yeah, I think it's you know, quickly afterwards. But maybe before before we get to uh, before we get to digital, uh, one other thing that was interesting, like we just spent time talking about the the field reps, the MSRs, but we we didn't talk a whole lot about what's happening back at corporate. Um, and uh, Doctor Mir observes their uh, train the trainer program that they're doing back at corporate as well, where all the MSRs come in mm -hmm. uh, and learn how to actually, uh, you know, I guess, conduct their trainings and serve the customers. Um, yeah. And I thought the way they talked about that train, the trainer program was also really interesting. Did you, do you remember that part, Dave? This was, oh, are you talking about the self-study aspect of it too, in particular? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, my favorite thing about this is the way that, that she writes about the, the trainers is okay. You've got you've got a lot of training you're going to do, but here's some self study work and pre work, and they do not waste time on self study and things. The materials that you could do to preload your brain and absorb and understand before you get to training. Oh my gosh, that's refreshing to hear said, because I think we should do that again. If and I, I feel this rush a lot of the times for some companies, especially emergent businesses that are very early in their tenure rush to train live train give everybody all the training right mm -hmm. but the caveat to that is that there's a 
baseline of knowledge you always need with a platform to be able to receive that and process it's like your bootstrapping operating system yeah yeah you have to be you have to be ready to absorb it's like you have to have the schema but i i don't like that's a good not an interesting way to put it yeah well it's a good it's a framework or a schema or a structure a mental way of approaching a subject area and that's yeah, a lot and of until you have do. like the schema there's no place for all the new information to fall and that's how you end up getting into the, all these cognitive load issues so it's like having the pre-work actually puts you in the frame of mind if you're now going to come into this very intense live course where they're doing demos uh and all of that then you have to be ready to to properly absorb and then apply that information which means you already need the the pre-work so they they have a so they have a test, they have a pretest that you do. Like mm -hmm. you arrive at the headquarters and you take the pretest and it's like 45 minutes and however many questions and you have to sit and, and take it. And if you don't uh, pass the pretest, they, they send you back to your branch office because you're not actually ready Go to home. take this course. Yeah. <laughs> Go back. Now, now, good enough. now, this is a train the trader program, right? So here we're not talking about customer education anymore. This is an internal enablement program. So they can do that, right? They can have a policy that says, hey, we can kick you back to your home, home office. That's harder to do with customers. But uh, I think still the point that you made about if, if we can give our customers pre-work that helps them to prepare for some of these more intense sessions, like especially if they're, they're going to be in a live classroom program uh, or something like that, then uh, yeah, preparing them for that moment is ultimately going to make them more successful when they're actually in the training. Yeah. Before we go on, I have to make one more point is that when you start talking about internal enablement, we've already talked about that before in this episode and in the show, I wanted to be, I want you all breaking the fourth wall here. I want you all to recognize the intermiscegenation, the connections we have between these different kinds of education. And again, I think there's always this race or this battle between us Who's L and D and who's enablement and who's education, customer education? We're all codependent. You know that's it's important to have the train the trainers trained to be able to do this, and they need to know the customer education material and so forth. So, it's we're we're all in it together. It's I, I the point I was trying to make is that we're not just calling everything customer education. We're not just calling everything enablement. We all have a job to do together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and she does this analysis as well throughout the book about uh, whether their internal and external uh, mm -hmm. teams report to the same org. And in fact, I think it only happens twice out of the six studies. Yeah. And it's uh, the two that we're talking about right now. It's Veritiper and then Digital is the other one who does it that way. So Veritiper, we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Digital for, for yeah, a moment because I think this is like the most interesting and relevant one to us. And then we can kind of like breeze through uh, the other ones. Yeah, so, you know what I, okay. what I like about them is this is really evocative of our world today, right? They were the largest manufacturer of mini computers in the world back in that era. What's a, what's a mini computer, Dave? It, it basically, is it's it's like is it like a PC? PC. Yeah, it's like a PC because they were the computers at the time were starting to get small enough that you could have a decent one at your your home office or your business, and they weren't cheap, but they could do. A lot more um, mm. on your desktop. You're, you're really you're reminding me of the episode of Nathan for you where he hires a Bill Gates impersonator, and, and the Bill Gates impersonator keeps talking about like, oh, and the computers they were so big when we started. They, they took <laughs> they took up the whole room. They were huge. I don't know if that's a good Bill Gates impersonation. I actually don't know how he talks, <laughs> but uh, that's that's how the impersonator talks on the show. Anyway, <laughs> so okay, so mini computers are like personal computers. 
Yeah, so I mean, this is the the great diaspora where we're take, getting away from the VTM, you know, big Vax terminals and crap when you had a green screen. And now we're starting to see computer technology being deployed at scale. This is the scale. Point, okay, right? so you've got, this is a hardware uh, and software company uh -huh. and they're trying to sell mini computers. Mm -hmm. And you have uh, at this company, a massive education services team. And they're responsible how for both customer and employee training. How, <laughs> well, how, yeah, how, how massive? What was they your, were huge. What was they took up the whole room. Oh, that's not what you wanted me to say. <laughs> the trainers took up the whole room. They wow. took up the whole room. Hey. Uh, <laughs> I'm no, it was a huge, now. do Come I, on. do I have, oh, uh, five, <laughs> no. Okay. I, I actually, I actually did write down the size of the team. Uh, they have 550, get that, 550 full-time instructors teaching 300 courses in 17 languages. And that's not even counting. Uh, they also do training at their retail stores, sort of like uh, Apple geniuses do, do like Apple courses. I think they still do that. Um, and like individualized self-paced courses that they distribute out to people that don't require an instructor. This is like a huge program. They say they delivered more than 2.7 million training hours, which they compare and I like this analogy. I don't think we do this enough in customer education. They say that's the equivalent of a university with 6,000 full-time students. Yeah. 6,000 full-time. That's big. That's a big university. That's, that's big. It's huge. I don't, uh, okay. I, I, want, I want to take a pause on that for a minute because we think today, I think it's easier to think today, oh, you know, scale, blah, 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 startups, like we've got all this knowledge and, uh, you know, all this experience working in this industry that we're in. But at that time, 1980-ish, 70s maybe, we were doing that kind of at-scale training and the value of it was immense. I mean, how would we have, nobody at that, I remember being this kid, Adam, that I would go into the department store or the computer stores in the neighborhood and stuff and you'd see these devices and your eyes might like I'm, I'm a geek i was drawn to this technology but there was no really easy way to learn any of it at all i mean you didn't have the internet like you do today maybe you had a modem but good lord you'd have to figure out how to use a darn thing before you could get the modem working so you could connect to the hodgepodge of an internet as it were at the moment so this was significant and it was yeah like a precursor to our scale, because now you're teaching, you're building, we're building the infrastructure for what we have today. Right. And so like, I think this is important because what are they doing in their customer education program? Well, their, their point is actually that they're trying to build a market around computers. Yeah. This is something we take for granted now, but if they're successful with their, their training program, then they're increasing computer literacy. Uh, and they are essentially putting their, their consumers uh, and and their their uh, uh, corporate buyers in a position where they're able to buy more computers and more software from digital, in part because they're getting more value from it because they're able like they're more computer literate they're able to use computers, uh, but also because they trust digital as the company who taught them to use the computer. So you can yeah. see a lot of their programs are oriented around this, um, and then they've they've got. Uh, They've got a slogan. Do you remember their slogan, Dave? I do not. Oh, it's in our notes. Just yeah, take it it's, away. Uh, it's <laughs> training. Training oh. when it's needed. We don't do. We don't do this with notes. Uh, training when it's needed, where it's needed. So they're really trying to go through multiple channels 
to deliver um to deliver education and that that almost uh it, it reminds me of our manifesto actually it was like our manifesto but 40 years earlier yeah i like that you know somebody right? brought it's up meet, the meet customers where they are meet customers where they are somebody brought up that manifesto yesterday honestly I'm like, oh wow brought up our manifesto such a good idea you know, one of the other things, if I were to, to pivot this discussion a little bit, I felt like this was a really good example where they discussed self-paced instruction at mm -hmm. a really granular detail. And this was the era, I think, and I remember reading some of the e-learning books and, and listening to some of the, um, gosh, who was the guy? I've got sitting right there. Um, Michael Allen? Yeah, that's exactly who I'm thinking of. Is that now? I know you all too the, well, Dave. You know me too well. You can leave, my brain is out there for everybody to see that the the complexities behind building that self placed paced instruction very early on was pronounced. I mean, there yeah, were, you're to do self paced. I recall in the book they were talking about well, you don't just necessarily have an instructional designer or someone like a trainer or subject matter experts. You need a computer programmer. <laughs> yeah. No, this is this is interesting. And this is worth this is worth spending time on. Because first of all, yeah, yeah, I think we we forget now, like sometimes you still hear uh, sometimes you still hear uh, e-learning be referred to as CBT, mm -hmm. uh, computer based training. And it feels like a really outdated term because it is. But uh, we have to realize that at this time, there's no real distribution a method over the web for for this type of training right there's no e-learning there's no articulate so what are you doing you're basically custom building software if you want to have uh, a self-paced program so this is actually really this is really slick like they're doing quite a few things that aren't self-paced they actually hit they have an instructor-led program they have um uh you know they have 550 full-time instructors like i mentioned they're writing and selling textbooks uh, in hardware and software to educate people on what those mean. They're doing training consultations for their customers to help them implement training programs for their own businesses, which obviously is also going to give them more business down the line because they're going to sign up for more of uh, digital right. trainings. Uh, they're training students for careers in computer technologies. They're like going into schools. Uh, we can talk about those programs in a moment. Um, and then they've got they've got like a live uh, a live program and a self-paced program. So the live program, they've got 25 training centers worldwide, and each of those training centers has a, a computer lab and uh, what they call a self-paced learning lab, um, and then what they call an audiovisual learning center. So these are all different modalities that uh, their students can use to learn, um, to learn how to use uh, their hardware and software. But today, the equivalents, like, first of all, this would all be in the cloud instead of going to a, 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 a computer center. But what you would have is um, something like uh, self-paced e-learning. Um, and then for the lab, you would have uh, something like, uh, like live labs, right? Or mm -hmm. like uh, embedded simulations. Um, and then for the AV Learning Center, you'd probably have something like uh, like videos, right? Like hosted on, on Wistia or Vimeo or something like that. But you didn't have any of that then. So you had to go to this, this training center and you had to like enroll in a course and you had to take it. Um, and then you could do, you could do a course uh, together with other students. So they had um, live, uh, live courses with, uh, they say between two and 20 students, uh, which by the way, I think is also worth 
uh, indexing on for a moment because this is something that we saw shift pretty heavily in the switch from primarily classroom-based training to primarily online training is now all of a sudden you're not really talking about classes of 20 students. You can you can train hundreds, thousands, millions of students at the same time if you want, right? Yeah, 